following program was paid for by the host. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting, management, or its sponsors. Now, Overdrive Radio shifts gears to entrepreneurs in overdrive as we speak to entrepreneurs and visionaries to inspire and to highlight local businesses in our communities. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Entrepreneur Hour. Um, Today, uh, well, first of all, the Entrepreneur Hour is brought to you by Universal Tire and Auto, home of the Buy Four Tires, uh, get a free alignment. Today, I'm honored to uh, welcome Dr. Wesley with us. Yes, we have Dr. Jennifer Wesley. She is a criminology professor at the University of North Florida. As a professor at UNF, Dr. Wesley teaches courses in family violence, criminal law, women and crime. She's received numerous awards, awards, a published author, speaker, and we're just very excited to have her on the show with us today. Hi, Dr. Wesley. Hi. How are you? (laughs) I was afraid we lost you there. Okay. No, I am here. Oh, good, 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 good. Well, it's really good to have you on board with us today. Um, We are honored. Um, I had a chance to kind of read your bio um, from the UNF uh, faculty. And um, I can honestly say um, that I'm very impressed. Very, very, very impressed. (laughs) And it takes a lot to impress Mike. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, Wow. Well, I... Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, you know, it's it's funny. Criminology and and one of those sciences that the um, obviously TV plays a lot in our lives. And um, yeah, you know, the shows that have focused um, on, uh, you know, the CSIs of the world and stuff like that have mm-hmm. definitely brought light to uh, uh, to such, um, you know, Uh, science um can you tell us a little bit more about it so we're not kind of you know the (laughs) following the csi guideline (laughs) (laughs) that's my that's my daily yeah i i I watch a lot of csi let's go ahead (laughs) well i have to say i do enjoy those shows as well but they're not necessarily reflective of what deal with technology so in, in fact, one of the issues we confront, you know, as professors in this discipline is that students come in and they think it's going to be like CSI, but it's really that most students have limited direct exposure to the criminal justice system, so they have a lot of stereotypes and myths. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we try to do is kind of dismantle those and talk about what's really going on in terms of the criminal justice system and criminology. But criminology is basically kind of the study of why crime occurs and, um, you know, who's involved, the victims, the offenders, all that stuff. And, um, you know, because of all these shows, which are very entertaining, we do kind of have misperceptions as a society of what actually is going on in the discipline, though. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You know, I agree. (laughs) It's funny because last night, as I'm kind of preparing for this, um, I sat there and I'm like, you know, I hope she's a nice, friendly person because if she is, <laughs> which you are, I can I can already tell. Um, because if she is, oh my God, wouldn't it be awesome if we did like an episode on myth versus reality? Because I'm gonna tell you, I mean, I, I doubt if if you ask ten adults, I guarantee you, eight or nine of them are gonna love some one of the CSIs. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I'm currently on CSI Miami and I finished CSI <laughs> thanks to like Hulu and Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 
don't forget about Dateline in 2020 oh, and all that. Stuff. There you oh, go. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it's funny because, you know, you're sitting there watching and you're going, you can do what? <laughs> it, I, yeah. I, I mean, I yeah, I know. And it's funny because, you know, I've had friends of mine that are like, you know, investigate uh, investigators and stuff that have told me, oh, no, 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 no. No, you can't do that. Right. And you go, what do you mean? Right. <laughs> I saw it on CSI, man. <laughs> I saw it. It's true. I yes, swear. I know. But I yeah, think. hey, I mean, I'd love to do an episode on myth versus reality. I think I think one of our most successful episodes here about cars, because we do the car hour before, just before, mm-hmm. um, is myth versus reality. And, and I'm going to tell you some of the things. I mean, you know, we've had guests with us and, and I'll say, you know, um, I'll say something that honestly, everybody thinks it's reality about cars and, and nine times out of 10, it's a myth. So, yep. Yep. It's, for, it's true. I mean, and also, you know, with the CSI stuff, I mean, there's a lot of biology and chemistry and stuff that's going on with that. So yeah. again, when we students come in that think that's what they want to do, they really, they have to take some of those sciences too. You yes. know, that's the only way it can happen for them as a job. Yes. Uh, like, like have the complete package versus just a one area. It, right. What uh, in your your personal um, discipline, if if I may say, or mm-hmm. or um, you know specialty, is it more into yeah. the um, which side of it? Because what I'm reading okay. here, it's go ahead, please. I, I know yeah, I'm not going to no. give you my conclusion. I'll let you talk. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can. You want to tell me your conclusion, and then I'll I'll either prove or disprove it. <laughs> um, it just looking at the books, honestly. Um, uh, maybe the effect of uh, criminal element on what I'm seeing a lot of, uh, re- not repeat, but a lot of the effect from different angles on women, which is by mm-hmm. all means you are, I mean, you're a woman, so hey, uh, you know, true. I probably would, would write something from a perspective of a man as well. So um, uh, uh, let's see what else. Uh, I also think it's the connection between people's experience. This is my thought, and you need to, to tell us if we're right or wrong. The connections between people, their experiences, and how it led them to where they are. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That <laughs> is right. Um, <laughs> see, now, now we're not going to be able to breathe here. Taryn's head's going to swell. So just <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. We're, we're, you know, as you could tell, we're just, you know, just laid back talking, whatever. No, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Good. No, I think, I mean, I'm not really a strict phenologist in the sense that I'm, I'm kind of a sociologist too, and the, the disciplines are, they're overlapping. It, it, um, it, you you but, cut out there for a minute. Can I, I really, I'm sorry. Um, oh, I cut out. Okay. Sorry yeah. about that. Um, no, no, no worries. The disciplines of sociology and criminology are kind uh, of overlapping and I consider yes. myself also a sociologist. Yes. So, you know, I am studying social relationships, social causes and consequences of human behavior. But as Karen said, I kind of look at that in terms of the experiences of people who have been marginalized or who are criminalized, yes. right? So traditionally, my research has looked at sex workers, homeless women, women ex-offenders, and then most recently, as I know we're going to talk about, incarcerated men who are in a canine inmate rehabilitation program. So I'm really more concerned with like social justice issues. How did these people end up being in these situations? What are the conditions that situate their lives? How do we address those as a society, as individuals? So that's really more of my focus than, you know, a strict sort of what someone imagines when they think of criminal justice. More macro, uh, if I may say, than macro. Uh, I mean, macro than micro, right? 
Like more? Yeah, I mean, my, yeah. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> if you don't stop me, I'll talk. <laughs> Go ahead, please. No, I mean, I look at the individual, but then I locate that individual's life circumstances in larger context. So my work is actually qualitative, which means I do in-depth interviews and focus mm-hmm. groups and with the populations that I study, and then their words are actually the data. So uh, that's different than, you know, just crunching numbers, statistics, but I'm locating their individual experiences in these larger macro contexts, as you're describing, and sort of seeing how that all fits together. Like, let's take, for example, uh, you had written a book back in 2010. It was the Hard Lives, Mean Streets, Violence in the Lives of Homeless Women. Tell us just like yeah. kind of very briefly, like based on what you were just explaining, how that kind of took, played into this book. Absolutely. So, and it's, I'm glad you brought that up because I do, it relates to my Orlando connection, which is that I was at UCF as my first job out of grad school um, for three years before I was hired at UNF in 2004, where I've been ever since. So while I was at UCF, that's when I conducted that work. I was lucky enough to get onto a grant with some colleagues at UCF Mm -hmm. and we studied the role that violence played in women becoming and remaining homeless in the four largest Florida cities. So we looked at Orlando, Jacksonville, Tampa, and Miami. And we did conduct some, you know, surveys. We conducted a great amount of of surveys in that regard, but then I also conducted in-depth interviews. And so when you talk about the role that violence plays in women becoming homeless and then remaining homeless, locating it in larger context, as you're describing, we have women who have had multiple intersecting instabilities in their lives from a very young age. um, And then that kind of continues into their adulthood, trying to get back on their feet, but again, facing all these obstacles that began in their younger years and then ended up oftentimes putting them on the streets. And a lot of those relate to these intersecting structural barriers that they face in terms of, of their lives. So that's what that, that book was looking at. And we did find that violence in their childhoods did contribute to them becoming homeless. A lot of times, especially young girls, run away from home yeah. to escape, um, you know, problematic or abusive environments at mm-hmm. young ages. Mm-hmm. And then they end up on the streets with very little at their disposal to to take care of themselves and to survive. And that leads to a longer uh, period of time where they're on the streets or they're criminalized in terms of their behaviors. And then they get routed into the system, which is a whole other issue. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of where that that all came from. And, and we found that violence in their early lives continues into their adulthood and, and keeps them in those marginalized circumstances. It's very cyclical. It almost Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think I think maybe and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think in 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 most of these environments, um that like being a cycle is seems to be the trend. So Yeah. Um would it be okay, so what is the solution in your mind? How do we break this cycle? <laughs> I know, I know. It's the million dollar. Um, it's the billion. Yeah. Sorry, the billion dollar question. Yeah, I wish it was that easy, but I mean, I have some thoughts, but you know, I don't know if they're the you know the cure all. Yeah. But when we're talking about any of these problems, you know, the criminal justice system is a band aid. So by the time an individual gets into the criminal justice system, whether it's because they're arrested 
for doing something on the streets or any of the incarcerated men that I've, that I've worked with that I'm going to talk about, you know, by the time they get to that point, they've been failed at a number of levels, right? We failed to prevent things from happening to them. We failed to intervene at earlier stages when they could have gotten services or programming that might have helped them reroute their lives for the better. And so then by the time they're in the system, it's like, okay, now we have to deal with where they're at. And we know that the criminal just being in a correctional facility does not really do anything to reduce their reoffending upon release. So that's why rehabilitation programs are so important, because if we don't do anything while they're incarcerated, then you're really not doing much to help them become productive members of society when they're released. So with all of these things, I mean, prevention at young ages, you know, just talking about, say, the vulnerable girls that I've worked with. I mean, dealing with resources for those groups, um, giving them strategies and tools for resilience in terms of handling life events. Um, being able to recognize situations of abuse and violence at earlier stages. Mm-hmm. All of those things are super important mm-hmm. in changing this pattern or this path that then can continue into adult lives. And yeah. then it becomes even more entrenched and harder to address. You know, it, it's, it's, I agree with you 100%. I agree with you 100% because, and, and, and maybe, and I don't want to say this and sound like a, hey, you know, I've been different, you know, to different environments, but some of the countries in Europe that have better numbers in these areas than we do, mm-hmm. uh, especially the Scandinavians, um, mm-hmm. they have mm-hmm. better reporting mechanisms for these kids to rather get tied into a better system to correct before they actually leave the home. In other words, they mm-hmm. don't end up on the street. No, they end up somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think about yes. that? Uh, well, global uh, globally, I'm I'm a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, but I will say that um, these kinds of strategies of intervening and recognizing problems early, at earlier yes, stages, as you said, exactly, yes, is is super important. Is super important, and unfortunately. Or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, yeah. it really depends on the politics and the way that resources are allocated and yeah. what people want to support. Yes. But I always say, you know, and I and I say this in terms of rehabilitation programs in prison too. I always mm-hmm. say that even the most cold-hearted person cares about their wallet. So ultimately, you know, if you can intervene or prevent at earlier stages, you're going to prevent yourself from paying more as a taxpayer later Absolutely. when these become bigger problems, right? And so, I mean, that is, that's super important. And also other countries may do things like decriminalize certain things that are considered quote, victimless crimes. And when they're decriminalized, people who are in those situations can get more resources Mm -hmm. and instead of just being punished, which does nothing to help that individual get out of that situation. Believe it or not, this is, this is one thing that again, I was thinking about last night, uh, which I will definitely present you with that question later. Um, I know Taryn's probably going <laughs> to, um, because, you know, she really wants to talk about the, 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 that rehabilitation, which, which I agree. I mean, just, mm-hmm. just a mm-hmm. jail, uh, just to put someone in a jail cell does absolutely nothing to make right. sure that that person does not go back out there and do exactly the same thing that put them in jail. 
And the next time he gets right. caught, because not the next time he's going to end up in, in jail, but the next time he gets mm-hmm. caught, he's going to end up right back there. So, right, right. So let's take a break. I know the, the producer's signaling us here for a break. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> let's take a break. And then when we come back, we'll talk about a little bit more about possibly uh, what do we think will help fix that system um, so we don't uh, we don't end up being back in the same spot before spending all that money on that inmate. So join us after the break. Entrepreneurs in overdrive, unfiltered, unafraid on Florida Man Radio. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Entrepreneurs in Overdrive. This segment is sponsored and brought to you by Feeding Children Everywhere. Yes, Feeding Children Everywhere. They are an awesome organization. They're headquartered here in Longwood, Florida. Um, Their goal is to pretty much try to stamp out hunger, um, not only among children, but among families. One of the greatest things, options that are available right now, especially virtually yes. to sort of help those that are in need is through a website through children, feeding children everywhere. That's fullcart.org. On this website, you can actually feed a family for 10 days on $40. Absolutely. And good food. I mean, we're not talking a family of four for 10 days on only $40. And they, they are very, um, they do discrete packaging when the food is delivered to the person's home. They take into consideration um, the type of food that they need for any dietary restrictions that they might exactly. have. Exactly. Um, and then at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, if you need assistance, you can go to fullcart.org and ask for help, and they are more than happy to help you. Yeah. You can also, if you see a family or a neighbor that's in need, you can anonymously uh, donate money to feed them Um and, you know, it can, can all be done anonymously. Absolutely. So, again, it's uh, Feeding Children Everywhere, and their website is fullcart.org. That's F-U-L-L-C-A-R-T dot org. Yeah, absolutely. An excellent choice, whether it's for yourself, for someone else you know, or um, just being a good Samaritan and helping a family out. Again, for $40, really, you cannot beat that. Yeah, they've now At fed least. over uh, 50,000 families, yes. 50,000 homes. 50,000 so, homes. Great organization. That's phenomenal. Absolutely. And um, back to Entrepreneurs in Overdrive <laughs> with us in the cell, uh, well, on the phone. <laughs> on the phone. I see, I'm used to saying in the studio <laughs> until this stupid COVID thing showed up. Um, with us on the phone is Dr. Jennifer Wesley. Uh, as mm-hmm. As I had said uh, before, it's absolutely a pleasure having you here. And I know Taryn, as I said, was chomping at the bit. Because this is a subject subject that not only that we're going to talk about now, that not only interests me, I think that it is just sort of it brings two very two groups of 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 individuals and of animals that kind of need each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it, it kind of is in, in a way it sort of helps. Um, my hope is that, you know, from the research that you've done, that you'll be able to kind of tell us if it sort of helps break the cycle or if it helps rehabilitate. Um, you know, really, Dr. Wesley, you're the only one that'll be able to. She's the authority on it. So for. <laughs> tell us about it, Dr. Wesley. OK, well, what where would you like to start? Um, canine inmate rehabilitation and kind of what that is. Yeah. Yes, so explain to us what canine inmate uh, rehabilitation is. Okay, 
So canine inmate rehabilitation programs are basically when incarcerated individuals who are in correctional facilities are paired with rescue dogs, and these dogs are typically pulled from local shelters, and then the dogs live with the inmates 24-7, like in their cells, and the inmates obedience train the dogs. They are following an obedience training curriculum, and this makes them much more likely to be adopted and desirable for adopters. And I should mention that across the nation, there's a lot of prison animal programs also with cats and horses, but dogs are the most commonly used. But like out West, for example, there's actually a few programs with wild horses in a partnership with the Bureau of Land Management and a correctional facility. So I feel like that's pretty cool. Um, There's an increase in amount of traction. Wasn't there a movie about wild horses? Yeah. Something. Like um, the horse whisperer or something? Uh, no, no, no. Some lady, I think, had a farm or something, and then she ended up, was about to lose the farm. Or uh, it, it, It's been a while. Oh. Yeah. Um, but that's what Possibly, she used to do. Yeah. yeah uh, I think. Yeah. But anyways, go ahead. Sort I'm sorry. <laughs> you said it again? Um, so, you know, there's a lot. One of, Some of my colleagues at the University of Denver put together a comprehensive look to see how many of these programs are out there, and they documented over 250 prison dog programs in about 47 states, and there's at least 25 here in Florida through the Florida Department of Corrections. Wow. And I was doing a little digging, and I saw in the Orlando area um, the correctional facility that is Central Florida Reception Center. Mm -hmm. They pair with a Greyhound Rescue, and they're doing a canine inmate program. And then kind of in a larger area in Ocala, both Lowell Correctional and Marion Correctional both have canine inmate programs. So they're they're kind of spotty around the country. You know, not yeah. every place has them, obviously, and it depends a lot on the resources provided, but they are out there and they're a really, really cool program. Now, one thing that I had read, and I please, please clarify this for me, a lot of the dogs that are put into the program are considered quote unquote hard to adopt. They come from broken abuse situations. What makes these Mm -hmm. dogs with these behavioral challenges the right candidates for the inmates? Fit. Okay. Well, a dog does have to be behaviorally assessed before they can go into the program. So basically just to make sure they can get along with other dogs because they're going to be in a small confined space with other dogs and they're going to be out in the yard with other dogs. But I mean, other than that, if they're from abuse and neglect situations, that would not exclude them. In fact, they can be the best, most excellent candidates for the program because the attention that they're getting from the the person that's training them in the correctional facility helps them transform into more social and well-adjusted dogs. And that's appealing to adopters, of course. But on a deeper level, the human participants, you know, the inmates, Mm -hmm. can relate to the dogs in their care. They can sometimes relate to the history of the dog, and this bonds them more deeply. So um, the the behavior or the uh, broken and abused sorts of, of situations sometimes leads to the best fit for these kinds of programs. Now, you taught a course on this, right, where you looked at the the inmate um, canine research with students? Yes. Yes. It was a re- <laughs> it was a really interesting course. Um, it was last it was summer of 2019. I taught a course called the role of canine the role of canines in inmate rehabilitation. And UNF had actually awarded some funding for us to travel as well. So we had a couple different segments of the class. The first segment, we traveled to Best Friends Animal Sanctuary in Kanab, Utah, which is the largest no-kill 
animal sanctuary in the U.S., which wow. just wow. as an aside, if anybody wants to take a vacation out West and volunteer with animals, Best Friends is amazing. You can volunteer with horses, dogs, cats, rabbits, oh, wow. birds, pigs, goats. I mean, <laughs> I've got, it's, 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 it's beautiful terrain. Um, yeah. I've gone there. Yeah, I've gone there with um, my husband. I've gone there several times over various summers to volunteer, and it's just it's really a great experience. Anyway, so I had this connection with Best Friends, and they have a division called Canines with Careers. And Canines with Careers actually assesses rescue dogs to see who they're appropriate to help in terms of prison programs, but also for roles in law enforcement, search and rescue, therapy, and crisis response. Mm -hmm. So I brought the students out there, and they met with some of the staff with Canines with Careers, and they learned how dogs could be evaluated for work with at-risk groups. So that was one portion of the course, right? And then the students took that information, we brought it back to Jacksonville, and the students got involved with the local canine inmate program, which at the time was known as TAILS which stands for Teaching Animals and Inmates Life Skills. Mm -hmm. That's in about four or five local correctional facilities. And the students and I went into three of those facilities multiple times, and they actually spoke with, sat down, and talked to the inmates in the program and learned about their experiences and how the program impacted them. And then the students also, as one of their assignments, they had these reflective journals, so I could actually see and read how they were getting invested in, in what was going on. So that was kind of what happened in the course. Now, how did you, how did the students kind of act? Because did they come in with certain, I guess, like preconceived notions of what the inmates would be like in terms of their relationships with the dogs and how it sort of would rehabilitate them? Yes. Um, there were some preconceived notions, and this is a great question because, as I mentioned earlier, most students have limited direct exposure to what's going on in the criminal justice system. And so a lot of them went in and they were expecting to see handcuffs and weapons and a harsh, intimidating <laughs> environment, yeah. Yeah. right? And this, this is what we call experiential learning, you know, going out in the field and hands-on experience. Yeah. And that has the potential to play a major role in counteracting stereotypes and myths. And I saw that's exactly what happened with the students. So not shockingly, you know, many of them were apprehensive about going into the prisons, um, especially like in a couple cases, we had to go through quite a bit of security mm-hmm. yeah. and the, the correctional officers are very matter of fact about what you're doing. <laughs> oh, and yeah. I think they got a little uncomfortable, some of them. And then they also anticipated these hardened criminals who were very unapproachable. But the minute that the guys started to talk about their experiences, this changed, right? So it humanized the inmates because the students actually learned about their experiences. They learned how they ended up in prison and what the canine program did for them. So these guys were just human beings. And a couple of the the guys in the program got emotional talking about their dogs, Mm -hmm. especially thinking back on a dog that they got particularly attached to. And that really impacted the students, too. And they they kind of became champions of these guys. Um, They observed things while they were in the prisons that, like in this one case, one one of the guys who got emotional about a dog, he was kind of like mocked a little bit for getting choked up by mm-hmm. one of the correctional officers and the students were just outraged. I mean, they were outraged later on. <laughs> That's they good. Said, yeah. That's you know, good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're like, how are the guys supposed to change if they're mocked for showing emotion, you know, and 
So they really became very attuned to that. What was interesting, though, is that several of them, because, you know, this is public information, they would go and look up the crime later that the guy that they were talking to had committed. And they they had some, like, dissonance between what they saw when they Mm -hmm. met that person and then the cold, hard crime that they committed. It was kind of like, okay, it's hard to reconcile those two things. But they definitely got very attached um, to the idea that these are human beings who need rehabilitation. And I will mention one more thing is that some of them were invested that one of these students, she started her own business where she tried to help inmates out with things that they needed in terms of um, contacting family and friends, getting um, legal representation. And then I had another student who started to volunteer with literacy at a women's prison. So they they really cared about yeah. what was going on, and I think yeah. it really changed their perceptions about things. Touching That's, moment for now, sure. What mm-hmm. what is it that mm-hmm. you think? Experience, yeah. yeah. What is it that you think is the is the sort of the magic between putting an inmate with a canine? How does that rehabilitation happen? Well, it's drawn from the human-animal bond, which we know is very effective in a range of therapeutic human contexts, but. In this particular case, I mean, I can get into some of how the identity change happened that these guys were experiencing. Do you want me to do you want me to get into that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, the there was the concept of criminogenic masculinity. That's what I was looking at. So this is where men may learn at young ages if they don't have access to kind of like performing masculinity or being a man in the legitimate ways, Mm -hmm. particularly if they're marginalized due to socioeconomic status and race. Criminogenic masculinity is a term that emphasizes an an alternative way of being a man through violence, risk-taking, being tough, Mm -hmm. never backing down. And of course, that stuff leads to crime, right? And so being a man in that way becomes bound up in criminal activity. So the idea is that the participants in these programs, through building relationships with the animals, they start to develop a new sense of self, and this interrupts or redirects this criminogenic masculinity because they start to think about themselves differently, and that's what leads to desistance or stopping crime. Um, so, and I can break that down even further in terms of how that progresses, but that's kind of you know it in a nutshell. You know, I, I really yes, I want. Uh, well, we have to take a break, but in the break, oh, okay. can you do me a favor? <laughs> And, and think mm-hmm. about what you want to see. I, I do really want to hear more about it because um, I do believe while it might, not, it might not be the be all end all to correct people, um, uh-huh. criminals, but it is at, for sure a very, very effective first step, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk some more uh, with Dr. Wesley. Entrepreneurs in Overdrive, unfiltered, unafraid, on Florida Man Radio. Hello, 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 and welcome back. This is Entrepreneurs in Overdrive, and today we are honored to have Dr. Wesley with us. Dr. Wesley, this is a very short segment mm-hmm. of 10 minutes, so I, I man, gotta just, I, I gotta oh, like, no. get as much out of you as possible. Oh my God. Okay, so go ahead. Please tell me, uh, finish what you were saying. Okay, so I was talking about kind of the way that the program could 
challenge this idea of criminogenic masculinity. So mm-hmm. what I did in my research is I conducted focus groups with guys at one correctional facility, mm-hmm. and I asked them questions that kind of spanned everything from their childhood to their current time. And so what we did is, and this is how I understood that criminogenic masculinity became a part of their identity at a young age, because they described how the expectations for them were that, you know, to be a man, they had to fend for themselves at a young age, Mm -hmm. never show compassion or emotion. And then this turned them into pretty hardened desensitized boys and then adolescents and then adults. And, you know, they learned that to be a man, they had to do this. And I actually had a quote from um, a a man, Tom, who that's not his real name, but he described what he learned in his youth. And I won't share the whole quote because I don't know if we have time, but when he was 12 years old, he lost a fight in his backyard and his dad just beat him um, for crying. Mm. And after that, he described, he said, this is a direct quote. He said, then it just went from there. Violent, 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 more violent, more violent. As far as realizing what a man was supposed to be, as far as caring and loving their children Mm -hmm. and, you know, basic humanity. I mean, I had a son that I didn't pay attention to and a wife that I left, you know, friends I screwed over, basic humanity that I robbed. So, He described getting that at a young age, right? And this empathy and caring kind of gets bled out of them. So once these dogs, you know, they started interacting with these dogs in the program, we we already know there's these what they call intermediate benefits. It benefits the correctional facility while the guys are still incarcerated because it makes it a safer environment. There's more, there's higher morale. There's um, more teamwork. Usually there's a lot of lack of trust between inmates, but they have to work together to get results from the dog. So things like morale and empathy, empathy is inversely related to aggression, right? So the more we have the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and, and understand them, the less we would turn to aggression to, to respond. So they had to draw on empathy to get results from the dog. And the dogs would not respond to the obedience training. If the guys were putting out this, this bad vibe, you know, this bad energy, they had to adjust their own attitudes and emotions Mm -hmm. to get results from the dog. And one participant said, and I thought this was really poignant. He said, it trickles down the leash. So I like that. Yeah. It, whatever it, that human is putting out, yeah. that's how that dog is going to react. Yeah. So yeah. guys started to see themselves through the dog's eyes and make changes accordingly. And that was critical in terms of how they viewed themselves. Yeah. And so as they began to identify and, and see the dog almost as a mirror to themselves, yeah. this helped them take on a new perspective and these shifts in self-concept were also recognized by like friends and family that would come visit them in prison, mm-hmm. which is super important because it validates that change that they're making in themselves. And so this rerouted their identity and challenged this quote, criminogenic masculinity or whatever that they had been deploying their whole lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so that identity change started their, the impetus towards pro-social behaviors, thinking positively and differently about their futures. Because I don't know if I mentioned this already, but 95% of all prisoners are released back into society. Yes. So it behooves us to, to do something to help in yeah. this regard. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. You just gave me an, an like an aha moment a second ago. Um, <laughs> and it, it really, seriously, it, it, um, I've often wondered why, um, a person would do certain things, any person. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and 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 very frequently, me personally, I can only talk about myself. Uh, I, I I kind of stand in front of the mirror and and you know, uh, did I handle the situation correctly? Did I do my best? Um, mm-hmm. It was just a a luck issue, or was it me? Did I fail myself? Did I fail the situation somewhere? This is just me being me mm-hmm. with me. <laughs> so mm-hmm. and right. and right. what you just said about. Um, about uh, the inmates, the fact that they actually see themselves in the eyes of that dog. Um, yeah. That is such an aha thing because it, it, I think what happens, and I, again, I'm not, this is not my area of expertise. You can, I, I can build a car with my eyes closed and <laughs> take a car apart with my eyes closed. I cannot do that. <laughs> I'm so. an engineer. So that's, that's my area okay. of expertise. But however, um, you know, I'm just guessing that the biggest issue, and I think you said that a second ago, but I want to super emphasize on it, is that what creates those, um, what creates, I think, monsters inside of us is that we desensitize ourselves in a certain area and begin Mm -hmm. not to care or even see ourselves. How are we behaving in that area? Mm -hmm. What Mm -hmm. that leads to the 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 inner self not asking us a question why did you f up why did you do this you shouldn't have mm-hmm. done this you should have done that you should have right kept your mouth shut you should have etc etc which all of us do yeah. we all have it i mean i've you know yeah. i've been in situations where i was right but i opened my big mouth and i spoke when i shouldn't have which added to the situation and made it worse and mm-hmm. afterwards, I sit there and I go, my God, man, couldn't you just keep right. your big trap shut for a second? <laughs> you were winning the situation. Why did you have to speak? Yep. And, you know, but it's it. what happens to that inner voice inside of us, I think it gets desensitized and it does yeah. not up, uh-huh. does not work anymore. And that's what makes right. us. So I guess the solution yeah. would be is how do we re liven up that? inner voice inside of us and that's where that yeah. program comes in i believe mm-hmm. right well the dogs yeah obviously afford and, and dogs man yeah. they they, they sniff it a love, mile no away no matter what and no no i you know they, they they i don't know if we give them enough credit but dogs do pick on your energy whether be it a good energy a bad energy a uh you're being neurotic you're being you know what i'm saying you're being calm you're being whatever it is they pick on it and they act accordingly yes but yeah my dogs were like spazzing out before this interview and i think it's because i was nervous (laughs) 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 i'm like i'm gonna have to fix you guys they they do you know it's it's funny i was just telling taryn a second ago I'm, i'm like you know we really don't know how much dogs affect us. I mean, I know this, that mm-hmm. I wake up some mornings and I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. And then, you know, my boy jumps up on my on my lap and starts licking my face. And it's like, hey, what's going on? Well, they're like that. And en- yeah. they're, they're the energy that you need when you're going through a slump. I can sometimes just sit with them for a second, be, you know, if I'm upset about something. And it's like they, they re- I don't know what the word, they charge you up, basically, yeah. Yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
that's really, really consistent with what a lot of the guys said. Like one of them said something like it makes the fences go away just when I sit with my dog for a minute. And um, it just it gives them a a lot of them. They felt like their true self was finally coming out when they worked with the dogs. The the part that allowed them, you know, those things like emotion and compassion never went away. but They were so suppressed Mm -hmm. and the dogs. They suddenly didn't care if they were sitting in the crate with the dog making baby talk, even if other guys saw them and made fun of them because this was like a whole new relationship. And they and they talked about that. And, you know, they can be merciless with each other. And they and and the guys would still just really um, emphasize those relationships with their dog. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. You know, Mm -hmm. Dr. Wesley, it's been such an honor. And I really I'm going to ask you here and put you on the spot. I'm sorry. He's going to ask it on air. But I'm going to ask it on air please oh, come no, back no. and be with us again please 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 i really oh, I would, would love, love to, come to. Back. i really I have so much more to say i, I know <laughs> i know me too me too it's i my god it's yes um it's like you yeah you're one of those people that i i was just like sitting here going oh my god we only got 10 minutes that's not cool so <laughs> it went very fast i know it sure. did. that's for sure absolutely i thank you both for having me on it's we been really great to, to talk about this and again i'm gonna hold you to this we would love to have you yeah, again i would so love please. to come back yeah uh, yeah absolutely yeah. all right so in 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 kind of wrapping things up here uh, i really mm-hmm. do um want to say that uh, we had, I think, talked about this before once. That that honestly, giving up on somebody is not always the answer. Let's give them right. a chance, and I think that a program like this is definitely the first step towards maybe a complete rehabilitation for somebody. So. Mm-hmm. Thank mm-hmm. you so much yeah. for being here, yes. Dr. Wesley. Dr. Thank Jennifer, you, everybody, thank for you. joining us. And join us again next week. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody.